Hi everyone, my name is Lon Lo, and I'm the founder of Agro, which was recently acquired by Trellis. Stay tuned to learn more about my journey as a developer and founder of an e-commerce agency, as well as how MongoDB is better suited to e-commerce than many in the industry would think. Welcome to the show. My name is Michael Lin, your host. Great show for you today. Lone Law stops by. And as you heard, he's the founder of Outgrow, recently acquired by Trellis. We're going to learn about that journey, his journey as a developer, a freelancer, and ultimately uh, starting an agency, how we did that. And we're going to learn about why MongoDB is so well-suited in the e-commerce industry, why it's such a, such a great database platform for the e-commerce space. Before we get to the show, if you're planning on being at AWS reInvent on November 29th, 2021, make sure you swing by the MongoDB booth. I'll be there. I'll be demonstrating some software. I'll be demonstrating e-commerce software, by the way. Uh, we'll have some challenges. We'll have some prizes. You'll be able to win some stuff. So make sure you stop by, say hi, let me know you listen to the podcast. Hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Lone, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, Lone, maybe introduce yourself and tell the folks who you are and what you do. Right. So uh, I'm a software engineer at heart. I started my career as a freelancer uh, software engineer, and I've always been very interested in web technology. So I've always worked on web projects and first started with PHP and then moved over to Node.js. And pretty early in my career, I was very interested in e-commerce. So I really picked that up as you know my main area of interest, and I started to get more and more e-commerce clients for e-commerce projects. Um, and my freelance career kind of grew you know, over time into a real company, which is uh, Outgrow, which by the way, I'm very happy to announce that uh, we have been acquired by a bigger agency called uh, Trellis based in uh, Boston. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of my career in a nutshell, you know, and now uh, I am leading the uh, strategy for uh, doing more, you know, custom work on Node.js, React, etc., at this uh, agency trellis. Congratulations, that's uh, that's exciting news. Thank you, yeah, I was very excited for it. And uh, this is really just fresh news just happened this week. So uh, very, very excited for that and what's to come. Oh, great. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be the first uh, media outlet that you share that with, so thank you. Lone, why, why e-commerce? Why this industry? You know, it, it's gonna sound a bit cliche, but what really uh, gave me this interest into e-commerce when I started was that it kind of every, so to speak, every line of code that you write will have, you know, dollar value implications with your clients. Uh, and there's really not that many industries out there where that's really true. And, you know, for pure player e-commerce retailers, they're a website and they're uh, mobile apps, et cetera, and their their whole e-commerce uh, infrastructure is the only way that they can make money. So, by them trusting you to work on that and to apply your craft to their platform and, 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 and you know, basically what is their only storefront um, is a lot of trust uh, towards you as a developer. And you have a lot of responsibilities towards them as clients. Um, so this is really what, what um, made me uh, very interested in e-commerce and, and at a pretty early stage. Yeah, I also got my start in... I also got my start in uh, developing software in the retail space. I worked for a small company called Concept Systems Incorporated. Shout out to my CSI buddies uh, way back in the day. And it is a fascinating space. Let's go back even further and tell me how you got into, into tech, into writing software. 
Well, uh, I think it's, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a pretty similar story to a lot of developers out there. But really, when I was young, when I was in high school, I just was fascinated with computers. And that was back in the, uh, you know, the early 2000s, uh, kind of approaching, you know, like uh, 2007, 2008, I really started to, 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 to pick an interest for computers and, and everything everything about the internet and, and how it worked, etc. I was just fascinated. You know, how does a website work? How is it that I can just type stuff into a computer? Somebody across the planet can, can just receive instantly what I receive. You know, this was fascinating to me. And I think that's kind of what, you know, a lot of developers, not, not everyone, but a lot of developers went through pretty at a pretty early age is just fascination for the tool that is the computer and the internet. So that's really what uh, what struck me pretty early on. And, and you know, when I was in, in high school, I would just like try to learn with tutorials, you know, on the on the family computer back then we had the family desktop computer in the living room, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like just trying to learn stuff, learn HTML and CSS and some PHP and whatnot. And and yeah, that's what got me started. Did you study uh, computers and tech in high school and beyond? Yeah, um, so I did at university, and I actually, fun fact, I actually dropped out twice. Uh, so I uh, tried a first curriculum that was uh, kind of basic computer science, and I didn't like that. I stayed for six months, and then I dropped out. And then I went on to do some freelancing full time, and then uh, you know, I told myself, all right, maybe, maybe you want to do that the more serious way, and like you know, pick a more uh, interesting curriculum, but still get a degree, you know, like this is not, this is not serious, you know, and had my family on the side trying to convince me as well to, to, to at least get some sort of a degree. So, you know, I was like, all right, let me give it a try. So, uh, picked a degree in, uh, project management and that was more, that was more my stuff. Um, you know, we still had some coding, uh, classes mainly around web development, et cetera. And uh, it was very interesting, but I was doing freelancing on the side. And at one point, you know, I, I just had so much work that I had to make a choice, you know, either drop out a second time and go back to my studies anytime later or give up freelancing for the time being. And I, I made my choice. And uh, so far, I haven't gone back to, you know, that decision. You know, we share that in common. I made several attempts at completing a degree program. And uh, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like um, I don't learn in the same way as you know, conventional students. And um, I find the self-driven, self-motivated path much more rewarding. And, and it's just a, a better way for, for me to learn. And it seems like that's the same with you as well. Yeah, it really is. I, I agree with you there. On that though, I can sometimes doubt uh, my skills and abilities because I don't have that degree. Do you ever, do you ever feel that? Like, um, uh, I guess maybe you would call it a bit of imposter syndrome. Not really, uh, but I, I, I know some people who do, but I guess it's, I guess that's kind of more tied to your, um, uh, maybe your personality and, mm. uh, you know, the, probably the people you work with who might, you know, some, some, some people you work with might, you know, uh, make some other people feel that way. Uh, but I've, I've always been in environments where thankfully I, I've never really been, uh, you know, uh, my clients, I'll, I'll just, I'll just start like this. My clients have never asked me if I had any degree and it didn't seem to have any importance to them as much as it would for an employer. 
Because when you have a freelancer to client relationship, it's it's much more different than an employer employee relationship, right? You have the whole interview process and whatnot. For freelancers and and later on agencies even more, what really matters is what projects you build before. And that's it. That's the only thing that matters. And for all you know, the client could never hear your voice. You could just talk with them on, on Slack and email. That's a bit exaggerated. Of course, I do meetings with my clients, but I could also choose not to. Um, and and they could really never, never get to those questions as long as you uh, do a good job. And actually, most of my clients didn't even know my age. When I started, I was freelancing at 18, 19. And I think a lot of my clients would have freaked out knowing my age. And it was probably a better thing that they didn't know anything about me. Um, and, you know, I was kind of semi-anonymous. Uh, at that time and just getting things done and they were happy with it, you know? So I think being a freelancer really helped me with that. It would have probably be very different, um, you know, if I had a, a standard job. I'm curious, how did you in the early days begin to get some of these clients? So I was very lucky to um, be able to uh, move to Paris. So I was, I was born in a, you know, a small town in the South of France and um, you know, there wasn't a lot of business activity there. It was, you know, standard old town energy, you know. And um, I had one wish when I completed high school. It was to move to Paris. So I used my studies as kind of a an excuse for me to move to Paris because there was not really any other way I could just go and, and, and live there. But I knew that there would be some work for me, you know, so to speak, in the big city. So I moved to Paris and that was really at the beginning of the French startup ecosystem uh, where we had a lot of great startups just, you know, make their debut uh, in, in Paris, which was kind of a startup. Yeah, starting to be kind of a startup scene. And I went to a lot of meetups, you know, like just free events, networking events for startups and, you know, tech presentations and tech conferences, etc. And I met a lot of early stage startup founders and, you know, with these connections, I could, uh, you know, some of them, I, I, I got the opportunity to turn them into clients. And I started to work for a few startups in Paris. And, and you know, with the word of mouth, I, I could, uh, you know, build myself a, a network from scratch, um, which is how I got my first few clients. The value of meetups. I mean, even, even to this day, I think it's so valuable to, to network. And especially if you're new in your career, um, getting out there, going to these meetups, networking, talking to people about how they're accomplishing things. Do you still attend meetups? Not really. Uh, I've, I've moved now to uh, Dubai where, you know, the scene is very different here. The uh, tech scene in particular, startup scene is a lot younger than the ones you would find, you know, in the U.S. and major cities in Europe, etc. cetera. Uh, so there's not that many meetups out there. Uh, I know the big companies like Google and Microsoft host some developer meetups, but to be frank with you, I just kind of lack the time these days to attend these. Uh, although this is definitely something that I should uh, uh, put on my to-do list and I, I should definitely join uh, some of them, just like the good old days. I would I would love to do that. But uh, to be honest, yeah, not really. I mean, it's still great to go to meetups, but I, I would rather go to, you know, big conferences like MongoDB World, for example, rather than going to the occasional local meetup not that the local meetup is you know uh, a waste of time or anything like this but when you have your established network you usually you know uh, there's only so much clients you can take right uh, and you're you're not necessarily always in your you know uh, prospecting 
um, uh, phase where where you're just out there looking uh, looking for clients, right? When you have your your few um, usual clients that always come back to you and refer some occasional other clients to you, that's that's enough as a freelancer or even as a small agency. Um, and the need to find some more clients is is usually limited at that stage. At some point, you transitioned from just being a freelancer to running a business. How did that go? Uh, it was a bit of a, I mean, it was a bit of a slow transition because uh, some of the projects I were, uh, was working on at the time uh, started to need more and more work. And I've kind of naturally started to, to need uh, other people to delegate work to. And my clients were, you know, were asking me for that. And it was, it just came naturally that, uh, you know, I had to find other people to work with. And so at first it was more of a freelancing plus some other people helping me kind of, uh, kind of arrangement. And then I just started to build a brand, you know, uh, around it and, and, and sell it as an agency basically. Um, but you know, it's always been the same thing at the end of the day, um, and a very small structure, you know, outgrow to this day is, uh, just two people and myself. That's it. So it's a very, very small uh, agency. You could say a micro agency. That's that's what I like mm. to call it. Um, so so yeah, you know, it's it's not that much different from a freelance business, really. Especially when mm -hmm. you have two, three clients on a retainer. Um, you know, that's pretty much what you do when you're a freelancer. Outgrow is such a great name. I mean, it's it's perfect for the work that you're doing. Who came up with that? How did you come up with the the name Outgrow? So I came up with a name, um, and it's it's a pretty simple reasoning behind it, um, is that we want to help clients that are outgrowing uh, the more traditional legacy e-commerce uh, technologies, and we want to help them get onto uh, you know more modern technologies that fit their needs better. What were you finding in terms of the the tool sets and frameworks and packages that were out there, and maybe these are the ones that that are legacy today what are the most popular projects and, and tools that were that were out there in the beginning so when i started it was a lot of magento and uh in europe a lot of PrestaShop. i don't know if i don't know where your listeners are mostly but um you know i know it wasn't very popular in the us but in europe it was it was a big name you know uh, and PrestaShop was this all-in-one php uh you know e-commerce platform, kind of similar to Magento, but, you know, more geared towards smaller B2C retailers, whereas Magento was more, you know, like the this big, uh, you know, steam machine that had all the bells and whistles um, that Presta Shop didn't have. So these were the really two big names. And that was, you know, Shopify was starting to gain some popularity, but it was still kind of a, uh, you know, a bit of an outlier. Um, and, and, you know, back in the days, you really had only these PHP platforms or you would just buy, uh, you would just build, you know, uh, a custom platform on your own, but it would usually be PHP. You know, that's what was really um popular back in the days, PHP and MySQL or PostgreSQL. And that's pretty much it. Um, and back in the days, I started discovering Node.js pretty early on. I, I you know, I, I kind of started on, on, on Node.js in uh, 2015. I remember something or something like that. And I remember thinking, is there any platform, an e-commerce platform like Magento uh, or something similar that's built on Node.js and MongoDB because back in the days, Node.js and still to this day, MongoDB uh, uh, Mongo and Node.js 
are um, very often associated with each other as a, just a great stack that that works well uh, from most use cases. So I I was wondering, is there any technology out there that I can use based on Node.js to build um, e-commerce websites? Because I was really getting tired of PHP, and uh, I that's when I found uh, Reaction Commerce which was in its very early days, and it was a Meteor uh, project. A, a lot of your, uh, I don't know, I don't know if a lot of your listeners will remember the, uh, Meteor, but that was very, very popular in, in 2015, 2016. Everybody was building stuff on Meteor, and then all of a sudden, that popularity kind of vanished overnight. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's how I started on on Reaction Commerce, which later on became you know switched to being an OJS project and and uh, React, GraphQL, and whatnot. But always kept the MongoDB, you know, database layer. Yeah. So do you miss writing code in PHP? I, I, you know what? I don't know if I would be able to write anything serious on PHP these days. Uh, You've you've worked on PHP as well, right? But it it was such a long time ago that, you know, I don't know if I could write anything. But, you know, it was... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, MongoDB fully supports PHP. I actually wrote a series of blog articles that um, that explain how to use the the PHP driver, the MongoDB PHP driver. So it's still out there, right? It's still, no. quite a vibrant community. I love PHP. Don't get me wrong; it has a lot of advantages, and a lot of the things we tr- we try to do in in JavaScript that are you know uh, not necessarily native, depending on the technologies you use. For example, you know if you use React, we try to do server side rendering, you know, for SEO purposes, etc. Hey, guess what? PHP already has that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if, if if you use PHP as a templating engine, or you use a, a third-party templating engine on top of PHP, and 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 build your web pages as uh, templates where you insert the data when uh, you know the the the, the page is uh, returned from the web server, well, you know you, you get all the advantages of all the fancy stuff we try to do with uh, Next.js with uh, server-side rendering and stuff. You know, to each their own, uh, and I, I would say there's still a great deal of use cases out there for PHP, and I'm definitely not, you know, in that useless and stupid um, technology war that a lot of people like to to lead. Um, I think that JS and PHP can uh, very well sit next to each other, and there's use cases for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So you you adopted Reaction Commerce, and that later became Open Open Commerce. I think is the name, right? Yeah, it was bought my, by uh, Mailchimp. So the full name is Mailchimp Open Commerce. Uh, but that's right. Yeah. Maybe give the folks a little bit of an overview of, of what this package is, what it can accomplish, and and maybe the size or scale of uh, of folks in the retail industry looking um, looking to launch something. Who would what what sizes and scales would it be good for? So usually, um, as an agency, we look for retailers that are uh, making upwards of. Uh, you know, up to up to something like twenty, thirty million dollars in revenue is usually the the, the sweet spot uh, for you know between these ten to thirty million dollars in revenue kind of kind of range, where uh, you know a full blown you know crazy um, enterprise product like Salesforce Commerce Cloud is definitely not something that I would recommend at this stage. Uh, but usually, you start to outgrow these uh, technologies like Magento and stuff. Um, where you you want to start building more and more custom uh, features, uh, but you find yourself kind of limited by this um, uh, you know uh, this this technology where you have to uh, think inside of a specific box and and uh, extending that 
box is uh, usually not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, and the same goes with Shopify, etc. Um, so, you know, when you want to make these, you know, custom backend modifications and, and implement some of your business logic without any restrictions, that's where technologies, open source technologies like, like MailChimp OpenCommerce really shine. Um, which, by the way, you asked me about what does the package include. So MailChimp OpenCommerce is really just a Node.js GraphQL e-commerce API. That's really what it is. Um, and it's important not to compare it with these full-blown, you know, um, uh, full kind of full-service packages like Magento, which gives you, you know, um, a storefront and 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 uh, all the backend logic and the admin UI, etc., all in one package. Uh, Mailchimp OpenCommerce will uh, give you an API that's open source that you can uh, query with GraphQL, and that has all the features that you need to build e-commerce um, applications. Whether that is, you know, a mobile app, uh, a web storefront, uh, a kiosk in a store, maybe you know, with a touch screen, it could be anything. Uh, and yeah, it's a very, very different uh, way to build applications. Uh, now they give you a storefront out of the box, but it's really just for demo purposes. And there's no system of themes uh, like you would find on Shopify uh, or Magento or or big commerce. You know, uh, so when you want to build a storefront for uh, Mailchimp Open Commerce, you just build your own React or Vue.js application and make it query the GraphQL API. So it's much more of a custom process, which you know these retailers usually prefer because it gives them that much more flexibility. Hey, are you an engineer looking for an amazing opportunity? The MongoDB engineering department is hiring. If you love to build, innovate, work with an amazing team and bask in the glory of genuine achievement, you might be ready for an opportunity in the MongoDB engineering department. You know, there's a satellite currently hovering Earth that uses MongoDB to store climate data. That's pretty awesome. But we've also been selected to power the analytics data for a next-generation genomic sequencing platform. And these, these are just the beginning. Every day, our employees get to solve hard problems that make distributed databases more accessible to the developers around the world. If you're interested in learning more about a career in the MongoDB engineering department, head on over to bit.ly slash MongoDB engineering. That's bit.ly slash MongoDB engineering. Now, is there a concept of a, of a, a schema built into MailChimp open commerce or do you need, can you, can you bring your own schema? Yeah. So, uh, there's a, um, there's a uh, schema at the API level, uh, because obviously it uses MongoDB. Uh, and uh, MongoDB is a schema-wise database. So uh, we have a system of, of schema that is, so for, you have actually two uh, types of schemas. You have the GraphQL schema. So anyone who has worked with GraphQL uh, will know that GraphQL has a system of schemas uh, just because it needs to tell you what kind of data to uh, expect to uh, give you when you request it and just even tell you what type of data is available for you to request, right? So uh, that's the, the first uh, layer of schema that you're going to encounter when you use the API. The, the second uh, layer of schema is when we make insertions to uh, the database, uh, we use a, uh, an NPM package called Simple Schema, uh, which I don't know if you've, you've already used, uh, but it is a basically an API level uh, schema where you can describe your schema in the code and it's just going to match the data that you try to insert into the database um, with that schema, and uh, that's kind of how it's 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 always been done with with reaction commerce now open commerce. 
And um, so obviously it's it's MongoDB, it's flexible in that respect in terms of the uh, the schema. Um, simple schema, I haven't worked with it. Does it query the existing set of documents to determine what the usual and expected fields are? No, it's, it's really just a validation API that you can use uh, with any database for that matter, not just not just MongoDB, but you know, uh, you can uh, uh, declare your schemas as objects, uh, declare the types, etc., and kind of similar to what you would do with your GraphQL schemas. Really, you can you can validate any kind of objects, but you don't have to insert them into a MongoDB database. You you don't even have to use any kind of database. You can just use that for validation for any purposes, which is very flexible, uh, and that's why they've made that choice, right? And at the database level. Uh, you know, the fact that you do not have a set schema makes things so much easier for e-commerce um, use cases. That's one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, how can you use MongoDB for e-commerce? You know, you need that relational database setup and you need the ability to do joins between multiple tables and, you know, uh, performance of the lookup in, in, in MongoDB is, 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 is not the best, etc. And I just tell people you're not thinking about it the right way. Uh, you know, <laughs> because if you structure your data in, you know, in an object-first uh, approach, uh, there's no problem. And the fact that you don't have a schema is actually a great thing that gives you flexibility. You can add fields anytime. You just have to, if you, if you use something like simple schema, you just have to update your code. But at the database level, you're not going to have any roadblocks, which I think is amazing. Actually, suits e-commerce much better than the traditional relation-based, um, you know, databases, in my opinion. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been at MongoDB for six years and early on, I mean, we've always talked about the perfect fit for MongoDB in the retail space. You know, if you think about the, the catalog collection, I mean, you're going to have products you're selling in your database and the products are going to have attributes associated with them. So for example, a can of paint, it's going to have a size and a color, but a bike, for example, is going to have a frame size and it's going to have, uh, it's going to have uh, features on the bike. These are vastly different or can be vastly different. So in the relational space, you're going to have to maybe create a tertiary table where you've got um, attributes described and then perform that link almost as a necessity. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I've from very early on, I've seen the the value of MongoDB in that space simply because of the flexible schema. Um, are there other reasons why MongoDB is ideally suited in the retail space or the e-commerce space? Yeah, there's a really a vast array of of reasons. And uh, aside from the the schema and the flexibility that it brings, I would say that uh, you know the performance you get when you structure your data correctly, and I cannot stress this enough because a lot of people come from MySQL and they structure the data in a MySQL fashion and they just expect MongoDB to be blazing fast because, hey, I heard it's blazing fast. Well, yeah, it is. If you structure your data in an object-minded ma uh, manner, which is not necessarily easy when you come from a relational database background. Um, so if you, you know, make use of nested data, uh, inside objects, for example. Uh, so you were talking about product variants. If you have a product object and you list your variants in a different collection and you try to make a lookup when you query for that product and the available variants, you're not going to get the best performance possible. If you have that product 
main product object and you have these variants as nested objects inside that object, you know, that's when, I don't know what you think about it, but that's really when you get the great performance that everybody is raving about, you know, when it comes to MongoDB. Um, a lot of people just don't get that, you know, and that's because they are thinking in a SQL manner. Yeah, yeah. And it takes me back to, you know, the discussion of, you know, why MongoDB in so many cases is just vastly more performant um, when you do that, when you embed versus link, it's physics. It comes down to physics. In the relational world, you need to perform that secondary lookup, that secondary read to get to the, the joining tables. And, you know, today it's not spinning disks. It's probably, you know, RAM-based or um, uh, NVRAM-based, uh, but it's still a second lookup. So, you know, it comes down to, to physics and, uh, and efficiency. And the one thing that I tell people is, you know, it, it, it's a choice. You can have a choice between embedding and uh, referencing between your, your objects to look up these secondary um, product variants, for example. Um, that's the freedom. The, the freedom of MongoDB gives you the ability to choose what the best performing approach is. Whereas with the relational model, you're kind of locked into that, into the normalization paradigm, right? And, and, you know, kind of a tangent to that topic, which is performance, um, would be availability, which is really critical for, for retailers. So uh, right now we're in that, we're entering that Black Friday, Cyber Monday period, which is, uh, you know, if you ask anyone working at an agency, they will tell you that uh, it's not necessarily the easiest time of the year uh, to, to be an agency worker <laughs> you know? or, or to even work at a retailer. You know, it's, it, it, it's not necessarily the most, um, the most pleasing time of the year, but it is definitely the most rewarding one. Um, so, you know, when you use, uh, you know, a database like MongoDB, uh, you have... And, and depending on how you've deployed it, but especially if you use MongoDB Atlas, um, you are way less at a risk of, uh, you know, availability issues, uh, you know, when you have these um, uh, very high intensity periods like Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And a lot of people will ask me, why is that compared to a SQL database? Well, you know, uh, databases like uh, MySQL you can you can uh, scale them uh, by you know having a, a master uh, database uh, and a, a bunch of uh, you know a bunch of replicas etc. But it, that's not the way that it that it works you know out of the box. That's not really uh, how that's not really what it was optimized for. Uh, whereas MongoDB works natively with replica sets, and uh, if you have a network availability issue, for example, one of the replicas uh, becomes unreachable. Uh, you know, it will, I mean, if your, if your primary, sorry, if your primary, uh, node becomes unreachable, a new primary will be elected, uh, instantly and, uh, the availability will, uh, will be preserved, which is not necessarily something that's, that's easy to do with SQL database. It's not impossible, but it's not, it's not easy to do by any stretch of the imagination. And that is the way that, that MongoDB works by default. And you can shard these replica sets on top of it. And you can have, you know, shards in different uh, cloud regions, et cetera. If you use Atlas, that's very easy to do. You can also do it with your own Kubernetes cluster. Um, but if you want something easy to set up, 
you can do that with Atlas very, very easily. And that's really where MongoDB shines, in my opinion, is preserved availability um, and, and just the, the sheer ease of making that happen uh, in these uh, very intensive periods. Yeah, and it happens almost without you even knowing about it. When you, when you deploy a cluster in MongoDB Atlas, it's automatically deployed in a three-node cluster. You can change the number of nodes if you want. I uh, would, would highly recommend not going, I don't know if you even can go below three, but that's the, the perfect, that's the sweet spot for availability. And like you said, if the primary does for some reason, maybe the, a network problem or a hard, hardware problem, which is odd in the, in the cloud uh, these days, but if, if the primary does go down, uh, one of the other replica set nodes will automatically jump into place and become the primary. And um, yeah, that's that's uh, phenomenal. And it's all deployed for you automatically, configured for you automatically by um, MongoDB Atlas. Yeah. You know, what's what's crazy is when I, I think that this was almost impossible to do a couple of years ago when MongoDB was not that popular out there uh, <laughs> and it was really an early an early stage kind of uh, kind of software uh, whereas now we just take that for granted and it's just completely normal you know at least on the projects that we work on you know uh, I've never had any problem with a database not being available you know just by working on MongoDB so and we definitely take that for granted nowadays but it is not something that you know uh, that's 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 uh, you know it was not that common back in the days to to just take that for granted you know mm -hmm. yeah for sure and you know the other aspect of this is you're talking about scalability so that's it that's availability let's leave that and we'll move into scalability when you think about Black Friday and Cyber Monday it's very hard to predict and one of the great things about MongoDB Atlas is that we've we've actually looked at this problem. And we started with auto scale in the sense of the hard drives. We've said, well, we'll automatically apply, if you let us, if you configure it this way, we'll apply additional disk space to your cluster so you never have to worry about running out of space. But then we took a, a look at the other elements of scale, uh, compute and, uh, and memory. And these things are traditionally very difficult to, to configure in an auto scalability um, approach. But with auto scalability in MongoDB Atlas, it's not even something that you have to worry. You pick a low watermark, the lowest uh, tier size cluster that you want for your deployment. And then you pick a high watermark. And based on certain metrics, how your application is performing, the number of users hitting the database, for example, and the amount of free RAM uh, and the per percentage of free CPU, uh, will automatically deploy a the next larger size instance, and all of this happens transparently. So that's a that's a beautiful thing, and I, I, I've got to believe that this is going to save retailers. Basically, uh, set it well, and forget it. I love it. Set it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so we talked about why MongoDB is perfect in the e-commerce space. Are there is there anything else that we want uh, retailers and developers in this space to know? You know, I could be, I, I could talk about that for for hours. You know? <laughs> but uh, but obviously, there's a there's a time limit on this podcast. But you know, there's a couple of things that that are not that uh, commonly talked about uh, that we've used for for clients. For example, on a, a recent project uh, for a big client of ours, we've used uh, the client side field level encryption for the first time, uh, which is you know a, a feature that's incredibly easy to use on on MongoDB. Uh, where we had this kind of uh, 
you know unique use case where uh, this this um, e-commerce platform uh, is really big on on privacy and wanting their uh, customers' data to be protected in case of in, in case of a, a database uh, breach. And uh, so obviously we've set up their their Atlas cluster in a very secure manner. We've used a VPC peering so that you know the, the connections don't go outside the, their the, their AWS VPC. Uh, but they still wanted that extra layer of protection to protect their customers' um, postal addresses, because their customers could be pretty high-profile celebrities, um, and that's that's their market niche, and they do not want these addresses to leak in case of a database breach. So we've had to use that client-side field level encryption feature for the first time. It was incredibly easy to use. Uh, and you can just encrypt fields um, you know, in, in such an easy way. It's almost unbelievable that this, this feature even exists in the first place. It's very developer-friendly. Um, and you can provide that, that peace of mind to your clients as an agency that by saying, OK, you know, we can encrypt any data that you want. Uh, if you deem it necessary, if that data is sensitive, um, and, and I was very surprised by the yeah the the, the sheer ease of use of, of of that feature. I don't know if you've had to use it. Probably, I mean, you work at MongoDB, so I would I, I would I would hope you have. <laughs> but uh, it, I was very amazed. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible feature, and we've actually enhanced that in five point one uh, with the advent of bring your own key management system. So we used to have. Uh, one key management system that was supported. Now you can basically bring your own KMS and uh, just offering that additional level of flexibility. So, so the the data that you're talking about never leaves the comfort and security of being encrypted. Right. That's amazing. But you know, not not many retailers, of course, are going to use encryption. But I think one one thing that uh, really you know, pertains more to uh, MongoDB, you know, uh, the, the the cloud services of MongoDB um, that a lot of retailers are going to find uh, use for, uh, contrary to encryption, is MongoDB Realm. You know, it, it mm. you know, it doesn't, we, we've been talking about, you know, MongoDB as a database for retailers, which is great in, in most of the use cases. Um, but MongoDB Realm, I think, deserves, you know, <laughs> its own separate praise. Um, because, you know, especially for retailers, you could have, uh, for example, uh, a trigger, uh, trigger a function when uh, a new order comes in, for example. And you don't even have to touch your code base. You can do that within MongoDB uh, Realm, which is uh, accessible from Atlas, which is which I think is amazing. So Realm has direct access to your cluster, and uh, you know, with change streams, can just you know trigger a function when. When, when when a new object gets added to a collection, for example. Uh, so, I mean, obviously you are the one who knows more about Realm, but I, to me, you know, as someone who works on e-commerce projects, I can tell you that the the, the possibilities with something like Realm are um, pretty insane, actually. You know, um, a client that wants, you know, an SMS notification every time an order gets filed, for example. Super easy mm. to do on Realm. Don't need to deploy anything on the code base. Just leave the code base as is. And just you know, set up a trigger on Realm, very easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it is so easy to set up. I mean, the third party services module in MongoDB Realm. I mean, it's got an, an option for Twilio uh, integration. So if you're using Twilio, you'll be um, pleasantly surprised there. It's as simple as putting your uh, your IDs into the configuration and configuring your service on the Twilio side. And I'm actually gonna we're gonna be demoing this at 
uh, AWS reInvent. Uh, so we're recording this on the 23rd of, of November and we'll be at reInvent next week, uh, starting the third through the, I believe the sixth. Uh, and we'll be demonstrating a MongoDB e-commerce application uh, written primarily by Jesse Hall, CodeStacker. So he's done an amazing job writing a React-based uh, front-end, leveraging MongoDB, leveraging Realm, leveraging Twilio for SMS integration, and a whole whole bunch of additional features. He's just done such a great job. I'm really excited to, to demo this. The the really cool feature of this this app is that uh, we'll launch the the platform, we'll launch the store, and there'll be some fictional uh, catalog items that you can choose from. But um, whittled throughout the interface is this little button that shows you the MongoDB aggregation commands and the the query um, statements that are used behind the scenes to to present what what you're looking at. Um, so it's it's just a great way. It's a really fantastic demo tool to show you how uh, incredibly easy uh, it can be to to establish a uh, retail commerce. Now this isn't going to scale to the degree that that um, Mailchimp Open Commerce will likely do, but it'll give you the idea about how to get started. So uh, really excited about that. I hope folks will swing by the MongoDB booth at reInvent uh, next week. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, open commerce, your background. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience uh, before we begin to wrap up? Sure. Well, if you're if you're a retailer and uh, you're listening to that podcast, chances are uh, you should be talking to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> how can people get in touch with you? you? You know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're uh, in the e-commerce space, you are definitely technology minded and you take technology seriously. Uh, and if you're struggling with uh, you know more uh, legacy tech that just doesn't fit your needs anymore, then you should definitely uh, talk to us at Outgrow, which is becoming Outgrow by Trellis. And uh, you can uh, send me an email at lloaks, that's L-L-A-U-X at trellis.co. And uh, just reach out to me on, on Twitter, twitter.com slash lonelow, L-O-A-N-L-A-U-X on Twitter. And uh, I'll be happy if you have any questions about using MongoDB for uh, your your e-commerce platform or switching to MailChimp on the commerce or, you know, building any kind of custom software for e-commerce uh, use cases, definitely get in touch um, and uh, I'll be I'll be happy to have a chat. Great. Well, I'll include links in the show notes. So if you're interested, check the show notes to make sure you get those links right. Lone, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks so much to Lone for sharing his story and a bit about his company and his journey. Truly appreciate that. If you want to reach out to Lone, make sure you send him an email. That's L-L-A-U-X at trellis.co. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.